CPOV. CertainPOV.com. Welcome back, dreamers, for another serving of the Dole Whip and Dreams podcast. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick. We're off to Neverland as we take a deep dive into the beloved Disney gem, Peter Pan. The well-known film was the 14th in the Disney animated canon. Like many, its origins began many years before it premiered in theaters in 1953. Based on the fictional character by Scottish novelist J.M. Barrie, who is known as a mischievous free spirit living a never-ending childhood, and for better or for worse, Peter Pan himself has become a cultural icon symbolizing youth and escapism. Outside of the two works penned by Barry, the property has been a hotbed for adaptation and reboots. Pan's time on the silver screen began in 1924 with a silent film adaptation of the well-known play and a musical adaptation would open on Broadway starring Mary Martin in 1954. As a Disney property, Walt had his sights set on Peter Pan to be a follow-up to Snow White in 1935, but he was unable to acquire the film rights until 1939 when they beat out Fleischer Studios for the property. Now, you might know Fleischer Studios behind the cartoons like Betty Boop and Popeye. Pan was worked on dutifully for the next two years as the logistics of the story, most importantly, how to start its story, were worked out. But on December 7th, 1941, a devastating attack on Pearl Harbor would pull America fully into the battlefield of World War II and would cause Disney to shelve both Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland to work on training and propaganda videos for the U.S. government and armed forces. But by 1947, the war had ended, but the economy was still in a dangerous place, even though it had started to improve. Walt Disney acknowledged that they needed sound economic policies if they were going to move forward and stay open, but emphasized to his backers that slashing production speed and the amount of films being produced would be absolutely suicidal for the company. Three films were in production during this time that included Alice in Wonderland, but it was decided in 1949 that Pan would move forward and be the first of these films released. When work on the production began again, Jack Kenny was brought onto the creative team to join directors Clyde Germaroni, Hamilton Lusk, and Wilfred Jackson. The original script saw many, many changes, so Walt ordered an unusual tactic to construct this film. Instead of storyboarding first, like they usually would, they worked this movie scene by scene until they had a complete working script, and then they did the storyboarding. This led to lots of plot points and scenes being worked or completely thrown out from the original, but we would see many of those aspects actually show up in the musical on Broadway, which had no Disney affiliation. Because the musical was already in development with Mary Martin at the lead, she was approached by Disney to play Peter Pan in the film. But Roy Disney said absolutely not, because he felt Martin, who was almost 40 at the time, had a voice that was too heavy, mature, and sophisticated to play the boy wonder. Cary Grant was also approached during this time to voice the iconically foppish Captain Hook, and while he thought it was a wonderful opportunity, he declined the role. While casting their youthful leads, Disney would turn their sights to alumni of Disney films to play their impish lead Peter Pan and sweet soul Wendy Darling. Bobby Driscoll, who had been in movies like Song of the South and Treasure Island, would land the lead as Pan, marking the first male performance of the role in entertainment history. Well-known voice of Alice from Alice in Wonderland, Catherine Beaumont, would supply the performance for Wendy Darling. Both of these actors also provided their live-action reference footage for both of their characters. 
I think it is important to note that Peter Pan would not be played on screen by a male performer again until Robin Williams portrayed the grown-up Peter in the 1991 sequel, though not Disney sequel, uh, to the well-known story Hook. While Disney's Peter Pan is not a musical, it feels like a classic MGM or RKO musical because of its large score with beautiful background vocals. Because of the large amount of time that this film was worked on, Frank Churchill and Charles Walcott would pen many of the iconic songs for this movie in the early 1940s, but it was ultimately Elliot Dane that would compose the score and bring all of their musical elements together. Ultimately, the film was released February 5th of 1953, and would also see re-releases in 1958, while it did financially well at its initial release, most critics were apathetic towards it, feeling it deviated too far from the source material, though they thought it was wonderful in sense of technicolor. One critic was quoted saying, It has the story, but not the spirit of Peter Pan. In most contemporary reviews from the re-releases, the reviews weigh stronger, but this could also have a lot to do with the childlike nostalgia most people surround Peter Pan with. With its initial $4 million budget, it saw worldwide grosses of $87.4 million, and according to Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 80% rating with both critics and fans. And while it's been beloved since its release, it has also become infamous for controversy for its portrayal of the native citizens of Neverland, and their well-known song in the movie, What Makes the Red Men Red. The stereotypes of these were pulled directly from the material written by Barry, as well as films and television of the time dealing with any First Nations characters. Animator Mark Davis had this to say, I'm not sure we would have done the Indians if we were making this movie now, and if we did, we would make them very different. These characters were handled in a similar way in the musical, which also does not hold up to contemporary scrutiny, but is still presented today. It was under some discussion at the release of Disney Plus that these scenes would be scrubbed from the film, but ultimately they were kept. This has been the main reason, ultimately, that these characters were also omitted from the 2002 direct Disney sequel, Return to Neverland, which will be the presence of next week's episode. This film will represent the end of many eras for Disney, but it sparked many new beginnings. This would be the last movie that all of the nine old men worked on together, and it would be the final film distributed by RKO, as Disney founded its own distribution company, Buena Vista Distribution, which is still in existence today. In 2018, Disney announced that Peter Pan would get the live-action treatment from the entertainment monolith using the marketing tag, It Will Live in Your Heart Forever. Now, as we contemplate on all the films that Walt had specific hand in, it's not hard to see the similarities between Peter as our protagonist and Walt as a creator, and understand why Pan has done so well for almost 70 years after its initial release. Think of the happiest thoughts, and we'll be right back after this break. Hey there, Screen Beans. Have you heard about Screen Snark? Rachel, this is an ad break. They aren't screen beans until they listen to the show. Fine. Potential screen beans. You like movies and TV shows, right? 
I mean, who doesn't? Screen Snark is a casual conversation about the movies and television shows that are shaping us as we live our everyday lives. That's right, Matt. We have a chat with at least one incredible guest every episode, hailing from all walks. We've interviewed chefs, writers, costumers, musicians, yoga teachers, comedians, burlesque dancers, folks in the film and TV industry, and more. We'd be delighted for you to join us every other Monday on the Certain POV Podcast Network. Or wherever you get your podcasts, fresh and tasty off the presses. What? But that's, no, that's not. Can I call them screen beans now? Fine. Screen beans. So tune in and we'll see you at the movies or on a couch somewhere. Because you're a whole screen beans now. You will be mine. Welcome back, dreamers. Joining me for our trip to Neverland today, I have Eddie Thompson. Eddie, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Of course. And, you know, just so this is uh, if we reference another conversation we've had, this is actually the second time we're doing this episode because technology is uh, flawed. So this is good. I love talking Peter Payne with Eddie. And so this will be absolutely wonderful. So I'm excited for you all to finally hear this. So, Eddie, why don't you tell the audience at home a little bit about yourself? Okay, so uh, I uh, finished school uh, last December. uh, accounting student but then besides that i also was a film student so with that i've been uh trying to review stuff a lot more and let's see what else and start up a kind of review blog that's exciting uh, and it's been going really well good sorry go ahead (laughs) yeah well well i've had it for years but i only just started like getting like an actual adult adult domain and like actually putting like real site navigation stuff into it around uh november nice well and this is honestly a great time because people are at home they're actually taking in media so much like i have friends who were normally on the kind of periphery of how they uh kind of took in media and now they are i have friends who are just devouring things and they're looking for places to talk about it and hear other people's opinions so this is actually uh, it's kind of shitty for everybody, but this is really good for those of us that want to talk about media and media is like the center of what we do. This is actually, I think, a really good time for that. Yeah, that and uh, learning about it, turning into a craft. I've been trying to uh, animate and stuff like that. Uh, the web design itself has been uh, a crash course. Cool. Yeah, I... Yeah. This one was similar where I knew a little bit about websites. It was just very basic things for what I had on my own as a designer. But then, like, sound editing and all these weird things that I always relied on other people to do. And we have an amazing editor uh, for the show. But, like, I still have to cobble the show together and things. And so how to do that and not make it sound like it was done by a five-year-old. So it has been a uh, it has been a trial by error. But that's what's fun. And things that are too perfect, I think... There's such an oversaturation of shows on the market of people that have nothing to say, but they have really good, expensive equipment uh, versus those of us that might not have as nice of equipment. But we've got some really great things to say. So I like to think we uh, we went out in the end. (laughs) Yeah. So, Eddie, let's talk about Disney because this is a Disney podcast. What is kind of your background with Disney? I know everybody comes from a different place, but what is your kind of upbringing and how Disney has inspired you as as a media goer? Well, I guess it probably started all with uh, some of the classics and some of the 90s stuff as, you know, like a baby and a really little kid. Uh, I know that Hercules was a, a big one for me. 
But then what really got my interest was uh, Pixar, Toy Story, the mm-hmm. 3D animation, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Oh, and also Aladdin, although I think Aladdin was more middle school, high school for me. Nice, yeah. Uh, yeah, I find Aladdin is, Aladdin and Toy Story are a lot of people's, like, where they say, you know, they've enjoyed it, but those were their points of, like, entry into being a Disney fan. Um, and so, Peter Pan, to me, uh, you know, the whole audience knows we're talking about that at this point. And so, Peter Pan is one of the most prevalent characters in Disney for me, of where you ask someone if they know you know, Disney characters they can reference, they'll say princesses, and I would I would argue that Peter Pan is one of the first, like, male characters that they would probably mention. And so I really, I'm so excited we're doing this also because, like, you'll always bring up on, on other episodes and things, you'll be like, oh, I'm shocked you guys didn't talk about this or that. And so you always have a really interesting look into kind of some things that I don't even look at when it comes to media. And so why did you... Uh, when you pitched me Peter Pan, what was your idea behind that? The, the whole thing is I still have to grow up and well, growing up has been horrible. So <laughs> I know that I, I know that I've always uh, tried to maintain being as much as a kid as possible mm-hmm. uh, since since college started and since graduating and at this very moment and stuff like that. And yeah. just holding on to that has been kind of the only thing that's kept me going through just regular adult stuff, just going to work. Yeah. Well, not going to work right now. No one's <laughs> doing that, but, uh, but stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've always, cause my dad is someone who is the most, has the most, I don't want to say childish cause he's not childish, but has this childlike wonder and amusement about things. And he was the one that like, instituted my Disney, my love of Disney and in things. And so, but he's always had this childlike twinkle to his eye and just, he's a grown up who has never grown up. And so I've always prided myself on, uh, not wanting to necessarily access what the youths are doing, but being youthful. And yeah, I, I feel, I've always felt that like growing up is a crock of shit, that it's a, it's a, it's a ploy, it's a scam and we don't have to, we don't have to buy into it. Um, and so there's a lot, about this character that I absolutely love and just kind of this movie. And to me, it also epitomizes the the magic of Disney. Like there's so much about this movie that just defines the magic that is Disney films, Disney park rides, like the, the why we go to Disney parks and why we continue to like embrace this idea of, of childlike wonder and never growing up despite... Um, having to be grown-ups. Um, and so, like, this character, um, have you read the books? I read the first one, or at least what I believe is the first one, because that's, I think, debatable, yeah. a long time ago, around when I was 18, 19. And I remember parts of it, but I, mm-hmm. I'm really due for a reread. Yeah, I, but, I've, n- I've never read these. And so when when we've been doing research again for this time, I, I finally bit the bullet. And I was like, you know what? I need to get the collective works of the like the two stories, the short story book. And then this one or the, the of all of Jane Barry's work so I can actually read it because, 
you know, jumping ahead to talk about like the critical acclaim of this movie. Actually, when it came out, it was heavily scrutinized um, for not really sticking to the source material. So for me, I would really love to read them and see, you know, because you can read what people decided to cut and keep. Um, but I, I'm really, I really want to read them now. And since I've got time now that I'm done with graduate school and Disney's closed for a while I've got some time so <laughs> um, I figure we can uh, I will, this is a good time so I'm hoping though that you'll remember some things that we can reference back to every now and again when we'll talk about kind of through plot and character and kind of stories we're going through this cause uh, yeah I want this to be a full breakdown we'll, we'll really pick this apart <laughs> for everybody um, so what were what uh, do you have early memories of this movie? Was this one of those movies that stuck out to you as a kid? Yeah, this was definitely one of, on top of the ones I mentioned, this was definitely one of the first. And one thing that's weird, I don't remember how this happened, is I'm pretty sure we wound up with two VHS copies of it. Somehow we probably lost one and then found it again. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Uh, as far as stuff that definitely stuck out, it would definitely be like little action scenes, like uh, we'll get into... Uh, the other aspects of this, but it's the only way it references is like when Tiger Lily is kidnapped, mm-hmm. like just really funny action, all the stuff with uh, fooling Mr. Smee. It's just, you know, beautiful and hilarious. Uh, yeah. And that's the stuff that uh, I really remembered as from being a kid. Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, so I think if we want to start this, we'll break him down as a character and, like, why we found him appealing as a character and then get into, like, the plot and the story and really kind of pick it apart. Um, I always loved Peter growing up because when he's whimsical, um, he's just not human enough. Like, there's something... Um, fanciful about him because he flies. He has the pointed ears. He has the little button nose. Um, his eyes are even a different shape than the rest of the kids. Like, he just looks a little different. But, like, he was the ultimate prankster. Like, he, in, like, a high school, like, a, a, a kid's TV show, he would be the cool kid. Like, he would be that prankster. He would be the the lovable lead. And there's just so, so much that I think is a kid that is likable about him. Um that as an adult going back and watching it, I went, wow, he's kind of a, kind of a prat, but like I, he's, I still, he's a lovable prat. And so this is a, just for the audience, uh, we're doing something new with this where we're going to do Peter Pan for this episode. And then the next episode we're doing return to Neverland. So we're doing the, the movie and the sequel back to back and not to talk about return to Neverland, but jumping to see, because it was a few of the people that worked on it who were very young, uh, who worked on the sequel, there was just something about the character that now as an adult, I go back and I go, oh, I I get why he's like likable, but you're also supposed to understand that at the end of the day, you have to grow up. There are reasons why everybody but Peter has to grow up. And so like as an adult, I still can really appreciate it. And it's weird because like in queer culture, Peter Pan is like heavily idolized by like gay dudes. And so it's really interesting of this, this thing of like, we, we have this like second coming out, which is this idea of being a lost boy and all these things that I, I think it's just, there's so many people who, when I talk to them, they go, Oh, I love Disney. And they go, Oh, I love Disney. Oh, Peter Pan is my favorite. And you know, it says, there's I always find out interesting things about them and it ends up explaining to me that I go, oh, 
I get why you love Peter Pan. Like, it's one of those things that I think Peter Pan fans, they are lovely and wonderful people, but I get why they like Peter Pan. There is so much about themselves that is similar to the character, but I think there's something that's so likable about him as a kid because he's like the ultimate kid, but then there's so many great things about him that we still want to kind of keep to our hearts as adults, even though we can see the, the flaws behind him. Yeah. And... And just to touch on it for a minute, it does help that Neverland softens him up a little bit. Yes. Yeah, it does. It does soften him up a little. And it gives him just a little more dimension because it is this thing of some of these older Disney movies. They're really great, but the characters don't have a ton of dimension, but they didn't need to. Like, especially when you're talking like classic fairy tales and things, they're already going from characters where their story is maybe three pages long. So, you know, we're really you're not really getting too much. So, you know, three dimensions out of them. So, I, you know, it's one of those things where Peter is about as three-dimensional as, as he needs to be. And I know it's not a Disney film, but for me, Hook plays such a huge role in, like, my thoughts of Peter Pan as a character. And it's also because I love Robin Williams, and I think he was the yeah. only person who could have properly played that role. Um, and it's not a Disney movie, but I think, you know, it's hard. It's hard because Peter Pan, this was the... Th- third um, version of him that was in media because there was, well, I guess more than three, but there were the books and then there was a play. There was an original play based specifically on the books and then the musical was based and then there was a silent movie that was based on that play and then the musical and the movie were being adapted about the same time, the musical with Mary Martin, because at one point even Mary Martin was going to play Peter Pan in the movie. Um... And so, you know, this was the four, I guess the fourth time that the character had been prevalent. And so people knew Peter Pan, like they knew this character. It was one of the, one of those things of, it wasn't just like the princesses where you knew Snow White going into it and you knew Cinderella. A lot of people also knew Peter Pan and kind of his place in media. Um, And this was also the first time he'd been actually played by a male actor uh, because in both in the play and the move, the silent movie and in the musical, women all played Peter Pan. Um, and so this is one of those rare exceptions because it's still in the early days of Disney's um, tenure as a filmmaker. But people knew this character. And so going in, oddly enough, people had actually a lot of ideas of what the story should be and who this character should be. It's interesting because it kind of reminds me of a. Uh the recastings we get today, Spider-Man, Batman, yes, those yeah. being the main two as far as superheroes go. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. I would say to me, Spider-Man is like the Peter Pan of the Marvel universe. And also just because we've had, he, he's been, re, he's the one Marvel character that's been recast four times. Everybody else is maybe once. Um, well, it'll maybe be once when we get the Fantastic Four, I guess, but really um, in the X-Men, but um, yeah, because we, the, we're on our, Third Spider-Man, I guess. Yep. Fourth, if you're counting into the Spider-Verse. Um, and fourth and fifth uh, with Miles and Peter. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those things that I think it's... There is a lot of expectation because people know it. But he also... They then have done, like, five other Peter Pan movies 
in the mainstream since then, plus Once Upon a Time, um, talking about how Disney's kind of continued to utilize him. If we're talking Peter and the Starcatcher, which was a Disney-produced play, um, also it gives us his origin story, which is very different than the actual origin story in the book. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I we can also chalk that up to Disney having this film and development for so long because it was supposed to be the film after Snow White. So, like, it was released in 43 or 53, but, like, it was supposed to be released in 1939 originally, but they couldn't get the rights. Or uh, before that, but they couldn't get the rights until 1939. And so it's uh, it's it's another thing that, like, this... It's, it's interesting when we look at a character in media that has existed in other forms of media and how they tell that story. Um, and so I guess jumping in, uh, from a storytelling standpoint, how do you think, how do you think this movie still stacks up? Like as we're going through and kind of talking beat by beat and talking, talking about the characters and things, how do you think this character stands up in its, in his own movie, I guess? Uh, incredibly well. I mean, he's the, well, him and Hook are the stars of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, both fantastic. And you're right, they give Peter just enough with uh, kind of the third act with uh, Tink going to save him for, mm-hmm. like, real growth. And I guess you could say that that's something that the Neverland guy, uh, Return to Neverland guys uh, kept in mind. So that's starting out as far as a uh, character goes. Yeah. I agree. So, and you brought up Hook, who, which we have to talk about him because he is the other, because like Wendy's great and Wendy is always present with Peter Pan. Wendy is present in the parks a lot with Peter, but Hook is so standout for me because he's such a likable villain. I would argue that he was the first likable Disney villain that we had because the rest had been scary women or the Chernabog in Fantasia. They were these big, scary beings um and but while hook has this danger to him there is this beautiful foppishness that it just makes him so likable that in sometimes i find myself going you know fuck peter pan i really like captain hook i wish captain hook would win this one time he is so so close to perfect there's just one little thing that's when he like goes back on his word it's mm-hmm. it's a small thing but they make a Maybe it's because it's one of those things I remember they make a big deal out of yeah. in uh, in the book, uh, the good form and all that stuff. We're so close to perfect. Yeah. But yeah, he, I, I love him. Yeah, and he's such a, a masterclass in kind of how you can write a villain. Because at times, also that moment where like Peter turns his back on Tink, which they then kind of use again in Return to Neverland when he turns his back on Jane, that... Peter does it kind of quick in a way that a child would and where there is so much more thought out fortitude to what Hook does. And he's got this whole drove of pirates who who like they're just they're so fun and they're so interesting. They're so they're so good. And that's that like the pirates to me are what makes this movie so, almost rewatchable because are, are so rewatchable, not almost rewatchable. Because yeah. I would argue this movie is very rewatchable. Um, because the Lost Boys are fun, they're silly, but there's just something so good about the the pirates and um, pirates life for me is just it's it's so good. I just and I love Captain Hook and I'm glad that he's stuck around and because we're at this kind of renaissance for Disney villains that's been in existence for you know five or six years now because Disney's finally fully leaning into going oh it's okay 
we can market the villains now, so we're going to make them likable. Um, but I've always thought that, like, Captain Hook did something that, like, they did with Yzma and Emperor's New Groove as well, that, like, they're really fun and likable, and you root for them a little bit of the time because our hero is a little unsufferable at times. And so mm-hmm. I just, I really, I really like Hook. And I I love the relationship between Hook and Smee, and it's, it's just so silly and wonderful. And it's also one of the reasons why... Um, you can tell that they went to like musicals like Pirates of Penzance for some inspiration because it's so musical theatery in so many ways. Um, and which is so interesting that the musical and the movie were being developed at the same time by two different people. Because for anyone out there who doesn't know, the musical has nothing to do with Disney. Disney does not own the theatrical rights to Peter Pan. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's, they they're just so they make me smile in such a lovely way which is just so so good um and it's they make me in a smile in a way of like they make me smile in a way that i grimace at the treatment of women in this movie if you know when we're kind of starting to talk about those things of like the pirates are so good and i almost wish that like tinkerbell um wendy and tiger lily could have gotten the same treatment that the pirates did um in a, I mean, Wendy is so much like a lot of the Disney females of the time, um, and she has so much in common with Alice, who the voice actress also voiced. Um, but they, they're, they just, they stand out so good for me in this film, and I can never talk about them enough. And I love, I love them, and I love when I see people doing the pirates at Not So Scary. It's just always so good. I'd say that Tink gets like still much, much better t- uh, treatment than Wendy and Tiger Lily left. I agree. Well, and it's it's interesting what they can do with a character who's not verbal um, and make because she's also like the pinnacle of beauty of the time because they had a pinup model doing her her um, body doubling and for the references and things. And I mean, because if you're looking at if we just even look at Tank and Tiger Lily and Tiger Lily, who is completely nonverbal. Um, or silent. Uh, I no, guess I think silent. I think now she now she gets she gets one she gets one uh, one drowning help. Oh oh yes the her one line her one line asking for the man to save her. But yeah no Tink I think has agency because she's also supposed to be the bad girl. She's supposed to and she gets a redemption, but she's you know she's supposed to be the bad girl of the time. Where Wendy's supposed to be the girl that all the girls at home are supposed to look up to. And something that I do find interesting about this is you can't just tell me it's a boy's film or a girl's film. It's in the grand scheme of Disney, one of the few movies that they've made for both genders. And while it's about Peter Pan, there's so much that the girls could be like, oh, I like Tinkerbell. Oh, I like Wendy. Oh, I like Tiger especially for the 50s, that this is, it's, I don't consider this a boy's film or a girl's film. Yeah, I get that. When we have to talk in the binary, everyone should everyone should know how I feel about that now. The binary is stupid and we need to throw it out. But when we're talking about classic marketing of films and how they built films, it was an adventure film. They hadn't really done an animated adventure film yet. And so this was... Oh, that explains the action. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's, it is way more action-centered because there are those scary moments in, in Snow White, if you think about it. Like, there are some... As a... As a because I think I saw Snow White when I was an older kid, but still before I was a teenager. And I've always been a weenie. So, like, that idea that, like, 
her falling down the hole with all the things grabbing at her and and the scary forest and the huntsman and you know it was legitimately scary but there wasn't really actiony things to it where this is just jam-packed full of action from the moment because you're exhilarated because they can fly and then they're fighting pirates and there are mermaids and there are uh, native folks and all of these things that just are pumped full of so much action and adventure that we were seeing in other films that I think just really made it appealing. But the characters were also just really stellar for the kids to kind of cling on to. And it's action that uh, still holds up today. Like, not not just the animation, but just the storyboarding and the ideas they had for moves and stuff. Yeah. I There, there are a few exceptions, and we're going to talk about them because... We talked about them before, and I think it's really important um, when we get to them. But yeah, I think there's a reason why every time that there's another version of Peter Pan, they iconically still try to copy moments from this, whether they mean to or not. Of those moments of Pan flying and fighting Hook on, you know, a ballast of a ship or on a rock, there are those moments that are just so iconic, that are just so good, but they just sum up the, like, action-adventure you want in a, in a pirate movie, but also, like, the things we love about a fantasy film, because it's both of those things, too together um and it's really before disney set a tone and set a standard this is them setting an industry standard which i think is really kind of cool to look back on and yeah i agree with you like this movie is so much it's so rewatchable it is such a rewatchable film mm-hmm. so i um let's let's talk about the darlings a little bit because they are you know there are our catalysts for why we go to neverland um, and this idea that Wendy has just the biggest heart and she believes wholeheartedly. And I think it's why John and Michael believe is because Wendy, Wendy believes. And so it's, you know, it's nothing for them to go to, to Neverland because, you know, they, it's easy for them to, to think of all the good things and fly. Um, and, but they're, they're really interesting because even, uh, you know they're they're not used even though they're present in the movie and they're why we're in neverland but other than to like lure peter places or to like do things i'm i always go i don't love the darlings as much as i love everyone else in the movie i get that i mean john is a whole person we're going to have to talk about but yeah. i don't know mike michael was always just Really, really cute, and I love that little bear. Michael's so cute. Michael is iconically adorable. I love the little bear. I love the little the little butt flap on the union, his little union suit, his little pajamas. Um, and so Michael's cute. Michael's there to be cute because he fits the aesthetic with the rest of the Lost Boys. Like, he, he's that cute little thing. Like, he could easily, I could easily see him staying to be a Lost Boy of yeah. the three siblings. I could easily see. And he's, the, he, he's as the TikTok kids say, he's baby. He's Michael's baby. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, let's, well, the, the, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, there is one other thing, at least, like, plot-wise, a good reason for him to be there is uh, the instigator to go home since he's forgetting his parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I which I, which is weird because it hasn't. It's only been a day, right? Yeah, it's been a day, but you know, wibbly wimely, timey wimey, magicy, woo woo. I don't know. Yeah, I, I <laughs> that's that's one of those weird plot points where I go, I get it because otherwise, even Wendy is kind of start becoming impractical because she's so practical, even though she's 
believing in magic and things that there's, you know, she still wants to go home because she's like, I can't stay and be your mom, but like, I love it here. But so, and you know, that's why I think you have to have all three of them because I think each of them would act in different ways if they were there alone. Um, which again, I think they use as a callback in Return to Neverland with Jane being there uh, and having the love for her brother, but her brother's not there with him, but there is the, she, there's the one little lost boy who's the youngest who he reminds her of, um, which they parallel. So it's a, you know, it's a good parallel. But um, uh, so let's talk about Mike. Oh, not Michael. Uh, 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 you just said his name. What's his name? John. John, thank you. Oh my God. Yes, I lost my card. John, who's oh, very pragmatic. Well, well, actually, yeah, first, before the tough stuff, yeah. uh, the pragmatic thing. The one thing, based on what you're saying, like, I think the way it would go with each of them separate, I think Wendy might want to leave because of mm-hmm. the mermaids and because of Peter, you know, being kind of a dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael would be a lost boy. John might try to, like, overthrow, maybe that's not the right word, uh, Peter. Yeah, I could see, I could actually see John becoming a pirate only because I could see, I could see him getting, like, he and Peter fighting because John's not an alpha male, but he is, he's that sensible kid because he's the glasses kid. They give him glasses for a reason. It is a very specific choice because of the kind of characters that we put glasses on, especially in this time. Um, they're the brains. They're smart. There's a reason why John has the top hat and the the umbrella with him. Like there's he's practical. He you know, there is, you know, there are these things. So I could almost in in this setting, if he was the one one, I'm not sure I could even see him going alone without the other kids. But I could see him not fitting in with the Lost Boys and easily being won over by the pirates. Um, for the but then adventure, also not, for the money. Yeah, and then also not necessarily fitting in with the pirates, but maybe Hook's pirates because they are there is a poshness to Hook. There is a genteelism that I think would appeal to John. Um, and I agree about uh, Wendy that she would want to go home also because her siblings are at home and she would miss her family. Um, but let's talk about a little bit of John and then we can move to, to Wendy. Yep. So where do we start? I don't know. So I know you said you had some thoughts on, on John as well. Uh, um, well, well, the main thing was, uh, was just that the idea that he might, uh, either become a pirate or try to become like overthrow Peter. That'd be like, Oh, great. The main yeah. thing. Yeah. I could also see him actually, finding a real comfortable place with the you thinking about the idea of European colonialism of the time I could see him finding a really comfortable place with the native people um mm, and being well, that like I mean, outsider I don't know I don't think they're gonna like him very much I don't think they will either <laughs> um and so yeah so great that's John and so and Wendy again I think you need all three darling children there to make this adventure work in this particular version and I think but and that's not a bad thing um because there is a lot that Wendy finds absolutely charming and wonderful about there but again on her own I agree with you I think they would leave she would want to leave Neverland I think she would want to eventually find a way home and she would be done with uh she'd be done with Peter's bullshit after a while um great awesome um so this plot 
Uh, you and I talked about it. We think it's almost perfect. I think it's insanely rewatchable. What do you think it is about this kind of story and this story specifically that people find so appealing? Because um, the structure and the way they tell the story, it's quick. I don't feel like they labor in any moments too long. And we're constantly on that push forward. And so, you know, for us, we, we love it. But why do you think it's so appealing for so many people? Yeah, the, the main thing, like, just through, I guess, like, screenwriting-wise is how lean it is, how it's, you know, like an hour 15, but it feels like 90 in a good way. Yeah. Instead yeah. of feeling like sort of, you know, two hours or whatever. And it's, it's, this is weird. I, this is something I picked up with uh, the movie Lady Bird, actually, is scenes only last as long as they need to. Yes. Which That's... actually for Lady Bird was a problem for me. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I just oh, thought, yeah. I just thought there should be more breathing room in scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is Lady Bird in many ways is a Peter Pan style film. She's very much a Peter Pan style character. Um, so it's interesting you bring that up. I love that film everyone go out watch Lady Bird I believe it's free on Amazon if you have Prime Saoirse Ronan is amazing Benny Feldstein so good I really like that movie <laughs> um, and, uh, on, and on those two actors uh, watch uh, Little Women and watch Booksmart <gasps> oh both great films both also really great films. Uh, I love that. Yeah. Because we know everybody needs some quarantine watching right now and you can't, you can't, you can't watch Disney Plus all the time. You just can't do it. It's too much Disney. I just <laughs> but I think this, this story's so good. And so, um, you know, for me, I think the only thing that really just, oh, the score. Before we go any further, I want to talk about the score too, because it is one of my top five favorite Disney scores. And it's not a musical, but it feels like a musical um, because it has these soaring 1950s studio choirs that does the kind of background vocals. And like um, Second Star to the Right is just so beautiful. And there's just so much, there's so many good things about the score. It's so just, it's, it's one for me, one of the most iconic things about this film. Oh, definitely. And then even when it's not uh, doing that, it's just really fun and, and based in stuff like the sound effects, like yes. the crocodile and just oh, the crocodile. it's like, you know, it's Disney doing more Warner Brothers stuff. Or, yeah. Well, that's also Alice in Wonderland. But, you know, them when they're actually being really cartoony and not realistic is the best. Yeah, I for me. absolutely. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And it's because it also, in the action moments, I think it underscores it really brilliantly and kind of keeps your heart pumping in a way that, like, um, they would end up doing the Pirates of the Caribbean score in many ways. That, like, there are these moments of they don't parallel, but they keep your heart racing and pumping to get you through that action and get excited in those moments. Um, and But there are the moments of softness and beauty, and it is... Such a film of its time in the way that it sounds. Like, I think it's like you can place it in time because of how it sounds. And I think it's 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 beautiful because of that. Um, and for me, also, one of the reasons I'll go back and I'll I'll listen to some of the music. But per, for me, I also want to watch it with that music because it's just them flying over London, getting on Big Ben and then flying into the stars. It's just so cool. And it's 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 again, it holds up in such a beautiful way that I just, you know, it's one of those moments that I go back to and I go, this is what made Disney so magic and so special. 
what's crazy about that moment is, you know, it, it, I think it uh, cuts to Big Ben, and then that's not even the best part. It's that long take of uh, flight yep. with the camera moving, and I still have to look up how they did that. Yeah, it's it's just so it's so beautiful, and it's filmmaking, and it's also it's it's animation at its finest in them showing yeah. that like. Animation wasn't just cheap kids cartooning. It was entertainment for the whole family that you can make a beautiful thing. It's tantamount to me of what Miyazaki would do with anime style film. (coughs) Uh, That is just these beautiful things you want to watch and you want to hear. They're just these beautiful, beautiful kinds of things. I always really wanted them to do a, I wanted Studio Ghibli to do a Peter Pan style film. Spirited Away is sticking out in my mind right now. Just Spirited Away is similar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite, of that. Um, so I guess let's talk about the one thing that stands out to me in this film. And it's present heavily in the book. And they kept it in the musical, which is why I still question why we still perform the musical the way we do. But it is the native characters. And it's the one thing that I just I can't get past with with this movie of and you know even the animators of the time 10 years later said you know what we didn't do it wasn't right it wasn't good we wouldn't do it this way now we wouldn't do it this way at all um but because it's still so popular and so prevalent and we're still having to tell people that like racism and social cultural appropriation are bad so i feel like we still need to have this conversation yeah, um, and so like this was an era of the the western was huge um, in film and television, this, you know, it was being present in so much media. So, you know, I get why they didn't think twice about putting this in, but it is this, this idea of kind of this wonderful savagery, I guess, is a way of looking at it, of this idea of like, there's these savage, ignorant people, but isn't their culture fun? Isn't the peace pipe fun? Isn't the way they ogle women fun? And I just... Oh, it's the one part of this movie that leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. And uh, for them, isn't the way women ogle back on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and it's... Yeah. Oops, sorry. Go ahead, Eddie. Well, uh, it's good to have them... You have to do it right. Representation, having them on screen is good. Doing yeah. it in a racist way is a big fucking problem. Yeah, and, and that's one of those things. It's, it's you know, this is like any time that they, you know, you had white people writing black people or queer people for years. It was, you know, it's you always play them as the stereotypes. And so you you lean into what makes them so different and so other um, because there's a different, they make a big difference of why they're different than the pirates and, and you know, why, you know, and, and this whole thing and how different they are from the darlings. and But it's one of those things that it's, it was smart of them to completely omit these characters from Return to Neverland because Disney didn't know how to do them without being super offensive and kind of resting on the laurels of 50 years of an industry that never asked why that was the wrong way to do something. And so, you know, and it's Tarzan did the same thing where they made the decision to leave all African characters out because the author of those books also did the most awful white racist imperialist version of those people. And so at that point for them, it was better to leave them out so that it wasn't questionable material. Um, And so it's one of those things that I think people have said with this film that like people are too sensitive. People need to get over it and realize it was a time. And I said, 
This is the thing that's the problem is, yes, it was the time, but it doesn't make it right in that time either. And it's like what you're talking about. It's like maybe they should have left it out or maybe they should have made them something different altogether. Like why? Why why did they need to be that version of Native Americans? Why why couldn't they have just been... I would have almost rather them been fanciful creatures like centaurs and things and not, you know, but Disney also, like, they had the little black centaur in Fantasia who is a terrible representation. And it's one of those things, it's like it would, it's almost better, you know, as a a white person, I'm not sure this is the right opinion for me to have. But especially at this point, it's almost like, isn't it better that it wasn't in the film at all than for us to look back and have to explain to people why it was a bad idea to have this in the film? Yeah, I get that. Um, so, and, but I also didn't think just cutting it from the film when they were going to put it on Disney Plus and then just cut what makes the Red Man red. And because that's also the thing is that song, I think, really is what it also puts it over the edge because it's one, it would be one thing if they were just there, if it was a quick scene, but like it is a huge musical number that like leans into all of the worst kind of stereotypes that we have. Yeah, well, the thing uh, for me is because I was prepared for, you know, going for the rewatch the first time. Mm-hmm. I was prepared for what makes the red man red. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't prepared for all the other racism. Yeah, it's that. And they're, they're the things that I get because I hadn't when we did this the first time, I probably hadn't watched this movie in 10 years, yeah, 15 maybe. And so watching it and then watching it again last week, I was like, Oh, I always forget these moments. And I guess it's because as a kid, we're not looking for those because again, children, we are not, we don't have biased opinions and, and racist opinions until we're told that those are the ways we should speak and think. And then we have to unlearn those things. And it's very important that we unlearn those things. Um, But yeah, it's so what are, what are some of those moments for you that just, just did not land well? Mostly, uh, I mean, almost all of it. Oh wait, not all of it. Uh, a lot of it was John. He just had this, uh, you know, this preconception of uh, natives being savage, and mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna we're gonna hunt them. And and I, mean, I don't think kill was explicitly. No, no. We'll, we'll just hunt. No, 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 but but hunt them, which is you know for just for sport, I guess. For, yeah, for well, imperialism. it is with. And I'd say with Hunt, it is it is implied then that you would be doing them harm. Because um, this is when, you know, there were these ignorant ideas of, like, all Indians scalped people, and they're going to scalp you as soon as they see you. And it's, which is just, oh, it's, especially because it's, when it's said like that, it's one of those things that goes, oh, y'all are leaning into this um, in a way that even, I feel like the Asian representation in, in, uh, the Aristocats and Lady and the Tramp, they they were having fun with it, and you shouldn't have fun with it. But they were they were doing it in a, a light where this kind of leans into like, if John was an older man, he would like shoot him as soon as he saw him, which is just uh, oh oh god <laughs> oh, yeah. oh god. Because when you look at it that way, you go oh this movie is literally only seventy years old. Mm-hmm. Like it's it that that's one of the well almost seventy in a few years it'll be seventy, but. Uh, it's that's one of the scarier moments of that thought of like we were still thinking that way about people who were not white and were not, you know, because this is in the middle of the civil rights movement, and so this is also like just this idea that that was okay for us to have that thought about anybody is just oh, it's just not good. 
the, the one thing that uh, kind of sticks out, actually the best moment for the Lost Boys kind of collectively is them telling John, you know, this is just a game we play. It's like, okay, thank God they were there to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because, like, heaven knows what John would have done. Like, because yeah. <laughs> that's one of those things that we see, we then suddenly see what we're capable of as, of, of as human beings. Um, and I think, ultimately, it was a really cool missed opportunity that Tiger Lily could have been this bold and awesome ruler as, like, a young woman. I mean, now I see her, she could have been, like, a Moana-style character, and it would have been really awesome. And, you know, hopefully that's what happens when they remake this, because we know it's going to get remade. Um, But, you know, because it's one of those things of, it's interesting to always see how other people handle the native characters. Um, And what they've done with it since then in, cause it's been mostly, it's all been live action properties that we've had since yeah. in, in our, our recent history when it comes to pan, which is also interesting to think about this story told through live action instead of animated. Um, but you know, again, it's something that I think we have to address and we really need to talk about just because it's, I don't, I don't want people to feel like we're just being overly sensitive and yelling at you and saying that's not right. But also just having an open dialogue about, like, how this makes... Like, I can't imagine being a Native person and every time I turned on the TV or went to the movies, assuming they were able to because most people were being pushed onto reservations or were being told to hide their, their nativeness, um, yeah. that, like... See, this is what they're always seen as, and then always seeing white or like Latinx actors play native people. Like, it's it's one of those things that it's like there's just it's so many things that I think a lot of white people don't think about it because they're always the norm. They're always the the mm-hmm. like what is expected to be seen on screen. That that then they get upset when they're not. But then I go, okay, but think about all of the other people who are not white, who are not European descent, who need to see themselves on screen and in representation. Yeah, it, it, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, I guess it's a no-brainer to me, but we still have to explain it to other people. Yeah. And uh, the one thing that we – but we have to still do it in a way where they are open to it. So that's why mm-hmm. things like cutting the uh, – cutting the scenes from Disney plus would, you know, backfire basically. Yeah. Cause then we're erasing it and you're also not owning up to it. Cause I think the most important thing is you have to go, yeah, we did this and yeah, it was a different time, but it was wrong. Then it's wrong now. And so you need to watch this knowing that this was a different time and we no longer hold to these principles or these thoughts because just cause you know, everyone had their own thoughts about things at the time. And just because you like the art that someone does, doesn't make them didn't make them necessarily a good person or an understanding person or a loving person of, of non-white people. And so it's, you know, it's, I think we have to have that conversation because cutting it to me is just cowardly and it's, it's revisionist history in a way that we are so beyond. And it is, it is time that we get rid of the bullshit. Basically. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, but you know, it's, I don't want that to be a reason why people don't see this. I think it's actually a really great conversation that parents or people are able to have with their kids are able to have with people at home because honestly, kids 
won't think that someone else is lesser than them because of how they look or where they came from until their parents or adults tell them that they should think that way. And so I think this is actually a great teaching moment to be able to like move on from that and and do better because kids just love unapologetically and so wonderfully. Like kids are just they're humans are naturally loving beings. And so I think until you put hate into them, there's no reason to make them feel that way at all. Yeah. Great. Um, oh, but well, also yeah. Oh, the other the other way it can go uh, is it's either adults tell them or they just like see. Like I don't think this is a problem for Peter Pan, but it's stuff like Family Guy, which rela- which mm-hmm. relies on stereotype humor and actually like mm-hmm. tells you this is what the stereotype is, like explicitly. Yeah. Um, I don't think Peter Pan does that. It shows the stuff, but doesn't say it's a stereotype. So that's why they right. get not a pass, but that's why it's still watchable and able to right. have that conversation. I I, th- I agree with you because like we've been relying on stereotypes and archetypes to tell an audience what they need to know about a character but like that needs to know is what their bias is telling them not what they actually need to know about a character when you work with stereotypes you're telling them the kind of hate-filled propaganda that one group has made up about another person um and you know a lot of times a group will feel the need to bend to that stereotype when they are told that they are to be nothing more than this or this is they are nothing they're not better than this and this is what they have to be and sometimes you'll get people in a group that will bend to that because they are oppressed in such an awful way and you know it's just part of the it is a systematic issue it is a system-wide issue it's not with a small group of people Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad, you know, Eddie, I'm glad we can kind of have an open conversation about this and kind of how, um, about how we can move forward with this. And again, um, we'll talk, Hannah and I will talk about it more in the next episode talking about Return to Neverland, but you know, it's a smart decision to then in that, to tell the story, a further story where it, you know, it sucks that they didn't use it to, to have a better open dialogue with those characters, um, but it was then better to not omit them to not have them there, but because they were like, listen, we don't want to upset a, we don't want to upset a group of people because of what our predecessors did in a previous film, which I think in many ways was smart of them. Um, and you know, 2000, and that was also just after nine 11, which the world was in a place where we were being told that all Brown people from the middle East were terrorists and we should hate them. And so, Oh God, America's so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, it's just so. Um, but there's so many wonderful things about this movie, which is why we're talking about it and why I want all of you to go watch it as soon as you listen to this episode. Yeah. Um, what are some other things for you, Eddie, that just stand out about this film that you just absolutely think are lovely? Let's see. So we've got the pirates, the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Just a lot of the uh, visual sense, uh, little yeah. uh, little things like the what do you call it, upside down uh, lake or whatever it is with those fish that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of stuff like that. You know, the beautiful artwork uh, from Mary Blair that they put, uh, I'm guessing also as backgrounds, but also just in yes. the opening credits. Yeah. And oh, I love they, the work of Mary Blair. She is, if you all don't know who she is, maybe I'll do an episode on her. Her work is so iconic with Disney, but it's just so beautiful. Go look it up. It's so lovely. I think um, I think I asked this last time. You've you've the book, right? Uh, the art and flair of uh, Mary Blair. 
I don't. It is in my Amazon wish list. It is one that I have never taken the bullet and bought, but I need to. As a designer, it's it's like a good it's a good excuse for me to go. Oh, that's a great reference book. I should have that on my I should have that on my coffee table. It'd be it's a good reference book. Um, but it's 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 so lovely, um, and it's just vision. This movie's just so great, top to bottom. It's it's visually stunning. Um, again, which makes it so rewatchable. And it makes me wish that we still did a little more hand-drawn animation. And it makes me sad that Disney no longer has a hand-drawn, like, an animation sector that does hand-drawing. Which makes me sad. Makes the world sad. Makes the world a worse place. Yeah, I agree with you. I I agree with you there. Because then we can't do fun things like Enchanted or Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where you need a really wonderful animation studio. Um, uh, But yeah, it's, it's just... Is that, so if we're talking plot wise, is there anything in this movie? Is there any moment in the movie that you just don't understand story wise why we go there? Let me think about that. So there's there was the one thing which the only reason, uh, or uh, they're only there a day, which is you know a weird time thing for them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that helps that I picked up is that whatever that tonic uh, they drink at the beginning, it might be their mm-hmm. their whole thing might be a dream. They all might be stoned. That's a conspiracy theory for mm-hmm. another day, maybe. <laughs> um, so there's always stuff like that in these movies, though. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, there are actually a ton of conspiracy theories with Pan. Like, as a character, it goes well beyond the Disney. Because that's, again, the funny thing is when we talk about, like, this, this kind of property, we have to also look at, like who the character is and who it existed in in media outside of this film. Um, um, I do think it's interesting that they presented this to Cannes uh, um, uh, Film Festival, which now has a very different... Like, I could never imagine a, a major Disney animated feature being sold to to the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> um, but I think it's just so... It's so interesting. And it's... I mean, it's lived on... This movie has lived on so long with Disney as well as other things because it's, I mean, we've had the, just with Disney alone, we've had Return to Neverland, we've had um, Peter and the Starcatcher, we've had um, all of the Tinkerbell movies, uh, which I love. If nobody out there has seen them, you all should go watch them. They're a good time. Um, And, uh, and, uh, ooh. Oh, and we've had Jake and the Neverland Pirates, which Peter Pan is on, but it's mostly Captain Hook is on, which in that suddenly the pirates are good, which is why I love, I love it. It's okay to be a pirate, um, which, I, <laughs> you know, yeah, I guess also Disney had to change their um, their tune just because they had already had the Pirates franchise at that point. So you can't yeah. <laughs> you, you can't suddenly tell everyone that it's bad to be a pirate, but great. Any any other thoughts on on the movie, Eddie? Uh, let me think. Uh, the the cans thing is interesting because uh, I mean this is when they were still not self distributing. Like they had RKO yeah. for, for their movies. Um, oh, we haven't talked about Wendy and the mermaids and all that stuff yet. <gasps> Wendy and the mermaids. The fem. Oh, you mean the feminism in the movie or lack what? thereof? What feminism? <laughs> what feminism? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, it's. Ooh, it's rough. And, you know, what's funny is the, the mermaids were, were cut for the Return to Neverland as well. Um, but, yeah, they 
They're just, you know, for the only other female voice other than Mrs. Darling, they're awful. They're just terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanting to drown Wendy, um, where Peter is obviously not interested in any women at all, other than just um, like, you're well, a boy, wait, I'm um, a girl. Wait, no, Tiger Lily. Oh, Tiger Lily, yes. He's, he's yeah, because she, uh, she kisses him and there's oh, some right. more... And there's some more racism after that. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, yep. Um, but, you know, it's, it's yeah, that thing. But, that, but that's the thing. They're really, they kind of flip-flop on Peter being interested in girls, which is actually, yeah, that's a plot thing because they're not really clear on it. Yeah, because technically we think of a boy suddenly having interest in girls. It's like one of those weird puberty moments of, like, growing up where Peter is kind of a teenager because he's older than the rest of the boys. But, like, he's this weird, timeless, uh, weird, timeless youthfulness. Um, and he does flip-flop because there's this thing of, like, there's this affinity for the girls, like, this interest of the girls. But, like, it's not super specific in, a, except when he is kissed by Tiger Lily. Yeah, it could... Um, they could say that that was just interest in mermaid and, like... Right. You know, just mermaid stuff, even if they were mermen. Right, right. Well, and it's just, you know, it's one of those things of, of it's just so, but it's it's so interesting that, like, also Tinkerbell is, has a lot of that same attitude that the, 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 the mermaids do. And it's so interesting that, like, with the exception of Tiger Lily, all the women of Neverland seem to be these really catty, bitchy women who are willing to kill other women in order to, like, not have them there. Which is just so strange to me. Well, I mean, it works well if you put it in uh, two uh, Mean Girls. Oh, yeah. You know, one of we, those things. Yeah. Which is another thing you don't expect on rewatch as an adult is, you know, like seeing the high school girls and stuff and all that stuff happening. And Wendy, you know, getting really screwed over. Yeah. Kind oh, of through yeah. most of it. Oh, and yeah. yeah, you and yeah, you mentioned she has no agency. At almost any moment, she should have just turned her back on Peter, but she just kind of like keeps like really following him mm-hmm. when she shouldn't. Bl- and it blindly too, because he's this kid that literally shows up on her windowsill and is like, "Come with me, you can fly." I was like, "Listen, my mom always told me not to talk to those kids because they have the bad drugs, they have the scary drugs. Don't don't talk to those kids." I wouldn't go that far. I would say after Neverland, after the first time he's, I don't know, doing something problematic in Neverland because, I mean, she does have the backing of the stories and mm-hmm. and stuff, so I think that's okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. I will, I will agree with you with that. Um, but yeah, I feel like she should have even even a young woman in the fifties who's being told that like she needs to be like cute and subservient. I feel like. The nonsense, like, when she gets shot out of the sky, when she almost gets, like, drowned, there are all of these moments where I go, you know what? I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. We got these weird older dudes on a ship chasing after us. You got some bitchy girlfriends here that all want to kill me. Your bros are being assholes. Like, I just don't. Y'all live in a pig pen, and you just want me to come take care of you? No, I'm good. I'm out. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. out. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird thing to want to. And I guess it was her only option because it's, you know, don't grow up 
at home or yeah. grow up in Neverland. Yeah. It's weird, actually, how you think about it. Well, and I think that's one of those moments where because we don't see a lot of Mr. Darling in this and we don't have that conversation with him, we don't understand why Wendy's has that apathy to growing up and why she's... You know, she's being told she's young, which we do see in the musical and it's in the book. Um, but it's it's this this thing that, like, Wendy has to grow up. She needs to move into a room with that's not with her brothers. And she she needs to start focusing on um, on lady things. I'm becoming a good young lady. Um, and so I think those are one of those few moments of where we lose things from the source material that would maybe inform why she's willing to stay a little bit longer or why this whole thing is a little more appealing to her than, than, you know, maybe it naturally would. Yeah. And we're also estimating everyone's age. Right. Yeah. I'd say Michael's seven or younger, John nine or 10, Mm because I'm just going to go with that because that's my start of watching family guy. Yeah. Um, uh, Wendy. It's 12. Would you, start, would, you, would you start older than 12? I would say minimum? 12 or 13. I would say 12 or 13. I would say that well, that's where Wendy is. And that Peter's probably about the same age. Like, in, in like his appearance, he's probably about the same age, but that everybody else is a little younger, but that Tiger Lily's probably the same age as Wendy, I would uh, say. Um, yeah, I could, I could see whatever Wendy is, Peter being a year younger. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But that, that's a whole wibbly-wimey to trying to figure out where we are in time at this point and how yeah. old they're supposed to be. Especially because, like, when you're looking at the source material or the musical, um, they're always played by people who are much older. Um, grown oh. adults playing all the characters. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but this is also, you know, if we're talking about kind of the women and everything, this is the first time Peter Pan is given, or um, Tinkerbell is given an image this is the first time we're seeing Tinkerbell, even though she's not speaking, she's very vocal um, and she's very emotive, but like she'd been a little beam of light or just a little uh, a little sparkle before. And so this was, you know, it was it was impressive that we were seeing her, but they had some obvious ideas about who she was because of how they designed her character, um, which also goes with how they designed the mermaids who magically end up with uh, shell bras and return to Neverland because of modesty, I guess. That's really weird that they go so that far with them being probably around the same age as Peter and Wendy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's not okay. Yeah, because it's also like, because then the only adults we see are the older native men and then the pirates. It's like where, what's going on? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and the parents. Oh, and the parents. Yeah, I'm, I'm at Neverland. Oh. Um, there's this weird age disparity thing. And you've also got, because, like, really with Peter Pan and with the natives and with the pirates, while there is some danger there with the pirates, there is still, it's a game. All of this is a game. Sometimes Hook wins, sometimes Pan wins. So, you know, and it's a thing of the back and forth between them. And so it's all, it's just this land where it's eternally a game between everybody. And even the mermaids say, oh, we were just playing and we weren't going to hurt her, even though they were. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things of, like, what exactly is Neverland for these people? And why are they all there? And when did they all come? And, you know, those are the eternal yeah, questions I think we always have. Yeah, stuff like why hasn't, uh, well, we know why, because Hook kind of is a little obsessive and wants revenge. But mm-hmm. he could 
you know, technically leave at any time and go yeah. pillage and plunder and what the rest of his crew wants. And the thing with Hook is it definitely started as a game, but maybe once he lost his hand and the croc came, not anymore. Yeah. Well, but then I we, st- we also- still... Do we... This is... We can't prove this either way. Can people die in Neverland? I don't think we can prove that, but I feel like they can because Tinkerbell almost dies in the second movie. So, okay, so well, yeah. and like there is a danger to why people because like I guess if you couldn't die, nobody would care that they're being thrown overboard and being tied up to drown or that Tiger Lilies kind of drown in the boat. So I guess you could feasibly die, but like Peter wouldn't be afraid of death because that's that's such a a young boy thing too of like or a young person thing is you don't understand your own mortality. Like that's just not something you you get, I guess, at that age. Oh, well, any any uh, final thoughts before we start wrapping up? Um, let's see. Oh, we have to talk about stuff like remake potential and all that stuff. <gasps> yes, we do. So that was my, my next two questions for you. Um, oh, okay. Because we've already kind of covered the how does it stack up in 2020? And I think it stacks up beautifully, but we have to talk about the racism issue, which we have discussed Um <laughs> And, you know, talking about most Disney films, they haven't had a live-action remake where this story, not specifically Disney, but the story has had a lot of different versions. We've had the 2003 Jeremy Sumter version. We've had the the Hugh Jackman as Black Blackbeard Hook uh, in, in Pan. They're all the, you know, we've had Peter Pan in Once Upon a Time. But, of course, like everything else, Peter Pan is getting a live-action remake from Disney. What do we think about that? So, I, while watching this, I noticed something really uh, kind of interesting. Is it's titled, uh, not on the posters or DVD covers or whatever, uh, but it's, it's titled on screen as J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great approach for them moving forward with all their remakes is to like really stick to not necessarily stick to source material, but do something along the lines of making sure they don't do the Lion King again, right. bring something different, maybe go back to the source mm-hmm. on Disney fi it, but still do, you know, put, put, put your money into it, which they're going to do. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause people really want that. Like I think that's why people are probably going to see Mulan, but Mulan has some other, weird stuff like I have to boycott it because the actress might be like in t- uh, might be supporting Imperial China but that's a whole other thing well that's also a cultural issue with their star system of their their films and so that is something that I am not educated enough to have a discussion about um, but yeah, it's, it's obvious that like for the Mulan in, in ways that they have, um, this is, you know, it's getting pushed back now, so we're not getting to see it. They've returned to a different kind of source material and a different version of storytelling than the other live actions have, which I actually think is a good idea. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with you. I hope we go back to this idea, uh, like go back and you don't need to recreate what you already did because honestly, Peter Pan live on NBC was garbage. It was hokey. It was bad. Top to bottom. And Oh, Eddie, don't waste your time. I just, I, I can't, I'm a huge musical theater person. I say we should support everything, but that is just, 
oh, I can't do it. But I think it's one of those things well, that, like, it can is Chris, is Wait, is Christopher Walken fun to watch or not fun to no, watch? No, he is painful to watch. It's painful to watch. The whole Shit. movie, top to bottom, is painful to watch. And all the Native are, like, hot, ripping, ripply... Uh, white dancers from Broadway. Um, okay, it's yeah, but bad. if but if you've ever wanted to see what a bathtub full of newsies would look like, you should watch it because all the most of the newsies are the Lost Boys um, from the Broadway production of Newsies. Um, yes. But you know, it's one of those things that I I don't want to see a happy, cheery version. I want to see not gritty because gritty is overused, but I want to see like an an adventure film of Peter Pan. I want it to be fun. I want it to feel dangerous. And so I think if they went back and gave us kind of a retool of the, the tone of the film would be helpful. Don't let Guy Ritchie do it. But like, you know, it's one of those things that I think we could tonally look at like how we tell a story in 2021 is very different or 2020 is very different than they were telling stories in 1953. And I think they need to address that. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to think. Well, Aladdin, I like the Aladdin remake more than I thought I would. But yeah, I still, but but, I still but no, don't do, don't have. Uh, but then that's still doing what you're what you shouldn't be doing and doing the same old stuff. Yep. Yeah, I think there's a way they can move forward with this and do it really intelligently, especially because then it gives them the opportunity of if you need to have the native people to tell the story, go hire real native actors or find mm-hmm. an island to put this on and and figure out what the native people of that place would look like. Like, figure out where Neverland could feasibly be. Like, d- does it float in? Is it an island made in the sky? Like, what is it? Like, find, like, actually, I want to see some realism and some dramaturgical research into where this is and how it is and how these people all came to be here and then use that to start informing some of your design choices but like don't have white people play natives don't you know just be smart about it yeah and the other route they could go is uh the kids as adults and then uh answering some of those uh those problems from the original movie yeah yeah I, yeah i yeah i agree with you yeah i think there could be i think there, there there are lots of ways they could go and i hope they do this correctly um i know there's another version of this coming out soon called peter and wendy which again is not disney affiliated but will be interesting to see because both actors playing wendy and peter neither of them are white which i think is really wonderful because Peter can be from anywhere, and so why does Peter have to be white or white presenting? He, he doesn't. The answer is he does not. No one has to be white. No one has to be white in this story. So uh, I think we should give as many opportunities as we can to other people to pres- you know, represent in ways that we haven't before. So Absolutely. Well, thanks, Eddie. I appreciate it. This is always fun. Uh, this is a good one to kind of pick apart, and you were the right person to do it with. So thanks for being on the show with me. No problem. Happy to do it. Where can people find you online if they want to find you online? So I'm at uh, whywewatch.com with uh, dashes in between uh, each word. And uh, from there, you can find my social media. I've done a couple of video reviews on YouTube and uh, a fake Spider-Man trailer uh, also on there. Amazing. Well, I will make sure that we share that on our social media as well so everyone knows exactly where to find you. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? 
And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar Briar Moss. Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our Circle of Friendship, where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives? Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives... CPOV CertainPOV.com Thank you for joining us for another serving of Dole Whip and Dreams podcast. We are now a point of the Certain Point of View Media Network. Find out more about our shows and all the amazing shows at the network at CertainPOV.com, where you can find the link to our Discord server for all of our shows, where you can chat with other dreamers just like you. We are pleased to announce that we have a shop of magical wares and dreamy items via Teespring, including some seasonal items that are only available until the end of June. Find the link on our Facebook, Instagram, and in the show notes. If you use the code DOLEWHIP, you get free shipping on all orders. Again, for free shipping, use code, code DOLEWHIP. Find us on Facebook at Dole Whip and Dreams Podcast, on Instagram at Dole Whip and Dreams, Twitter at Dole Whip Pod, and you can support us for only $2 a month at Patreon. You can find us at Dole Whip and Dreams Pod on Patreon and get an exclusive savings code for Marla Online Store. Thank you, as always, for our amazing research assistant, Angela Gwen, and sound editor, David White. We couldn't do the show without you. We'll see you next time. May your days be filled with Dole Whip and Dreams.